My name is Justin McClune. I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we are coming to you live from each other's homes again. Yes, uh, we're still getting used to this format. I've got Justin here in a tiny screen on the top right of my computer. We tried to do it uh, not looking at each other, but I realized that the spinach to my Popeye <laughs> is to see Justin's uh, happy face and and laughter and joy as I talk. I, I couldn't do it just hearing his voice. You kept starting every episode with, uh, and now on this week's Michael and Us, and you're like, oh, crap, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Luke, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So today we're talking about Tex Avery, who personally, I think he is the grandfather of all the cartoon, you know, wacky, zany animal tropes that continue to persist to this day. What do you think, Will? Listen, folks, have you heard of Bugs Bunny? Because Tex Avery created him. Well, not single-handedly, but Bugs Bunny, his first cartoon was A Wild Hare from 1940, directed by Tex Avery. Hey, do you guys like Daffy Duck? Because Tex Avery also gave the world Daffy in the 1937 cartoon Porky's Duck Hunt. And hey, when you see a sexy lady, do you ever go, Aouga, Aouga, and have your eyes pop out of your head and have your tongue unfurl on the table? Because you're probably thinking of the Tex Avery Wolf, that iconic creation from Red Hot Riding Hood. Never. That would be very rude, Will. Uh, you're right. That's very problematic. I, I'm canceled now. So I think that we need to go back almost to the beginning of cartoons just to differentiate the Tex Avery era and what had come before. Walt Disney. Disney, Max Fleischer, cartoons that, you know, people associate them with like, oh, that's the classic black and white stuff where Tex Avery comes in. And that's when you get kind of like fourth wall breaking. You get really kind of eyes popping out of skulls, this big slapstick physicality, which was his trademark. The thing about Tex Avery that, that everybody knows about him is that his cartoons were kind of wilder and crazier than anybody else's cartoons. They went further. They risked... Uh, you know, there's always a very delicate balance of logic in a cartoon. And Tex Avery was always like skirting on the edge of will the audience accept this? Yeah, like in a Tex Avery cartoon, there'd be a chase. Someone would go up to a door, but instead of going through it, he would just jump over it and then lift the door up. So it would reveal a wall that the other character smashes into. One of the things I love about a Tex Avery cartoon is there's this constant feeling of having the rug pulled out from under you. You're constantly watching the cartoon and buying into this is the logic of the situation. And then he'll undercut the logic and the joke's on you. There's a scene in the cartoon King Size Canary where this alley cat is like stacking boxes trying to get into a window. And he doesn't have enough boxes, so he pulls the box from under the pile and puts it on top of the pile and he goes through the window. Now, of course, gravity would not be on his side in this situation, uh, but the joke's on you for expecting that it would be. Yeah, as long as the characters buy into the logic of what's going on or react to the action that has been taken, it's fine within the cartoon world. It's weird to say it doesn't mean that anything can happen, because if that were the case, they wouldn't be funny. It's that elasticity of it that the humor comes from. Well, I think the thing that makes the cartoons work even for all of the kind of absurd leaps in logic, is the fact that they're all grounded in recognizable human emotions and largely very shameful and degrading human emotions. These are cartoons about 
vile, ugly characters uh, wallowing in greed and lust and uh, humiliation and and wanting to get revenge. And you know what I mean? Yeah, like the confrontational duos that we associate with cartoons like Elmer Fudd and Bugs Bunny. That was essentially created by Tex Avery over many iterations, whether it be Daffy Duck in his first appearance with Porky Pig, where Daffy didn't even talk, but he did do do his his Daffy Duck laugh. One of the quintessential Tex Avery cartoons is the Screwball Squirrel, where it opens with a a charming (laughs) squirrel. (laughs) I think so. I don't think it's a great character, but it's a quintessential cartoon. It opens with this like, lovable uh, squirrel hopping through the forest and he says uh, well i'm gonna see all my lovely woodland friends uh buster badger and uh wallace woodchuck and then you know the hero of the cartoon screwy squirrel who's basically just bugs bunny in a squirrel costume if he was really mean <laughs> he takes him off camera and it's implied that he kills him <laughs> and then he comes back and says you guys wouldn't have liked that picture anyway because the characters in Tex Avery cartoons are ugly and they don't pander. They're unvarnished. There's another character that I like in the cartoon King Size Canary, where this cat finds this little mouse to eat and you think the mouse is going to talk in a cute mouse voice, but the mouse actually talks like this. He talks like Jimmy Durante. Hey, listen, Busta, you, you better not eat me because I've seen this picture before and I know that I save your <laughs> life later in this picture. You know, his characters are always sleeping easy and lecherous and they're con men they want to get through life by eliminating anything around them with no real moral scruples tex avery you know when i said he's the grandfather he was also one of the more senior animators going all the way back when he was working for leon uh, schlesinger the company that would turn into warner brothers when he was like the head of the department chuck jones and fritz feeling two classic warner brother cartoon animators worked under him <laughs> And he was the one that was kind of dictating stuff. Did you hear the story that people said that they believe Tex Avery had such a, like, cockeyed look on life and humor because he lost sight in one eye when someone at the office <laughs> hit him with a paper clip? I, I did hear that. It sounds like an apocryphal story, but I guess it's probably true. <laughs> yeah, I like, you know, it's those kind of, I guess, uh, hero making tales that I do love. Kind of like I remember one of the animators, he got in a car accident and he got really badly injured, but they said when he got better, he could draw five times as fast. The 1930s Warner Brothers cartoons where uh, Tex Avery ruled the roost, I think he was like the, the head of the animation department during that time. You know, they're the cartoons that like when when fans of Looney Tunes cartoons look back on them, they think of them as kind of like the, the primitive era where the company was still sort of operating in Disney's shadow and was still emulating some of the cutesy tropes of Disney cartoons. If you look at the early Tex Avery cartoons, I mean, any cartoons of that era, especially the black and white ones, they all have the rounded faces that you see in Max Fleischer and the Disney cartoons. Some of the first things that he directed were long forgotten characters like Beans. They're softer and they're cuter and they're they're gentler. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, key early Tex Avery cartoons is I Love to sing uh, have you ever seen that one? It's like a parody of the jazz singer with this little this little creature who goes, I love to sing. Uh, you know, I must have seen it. And it's already kind of like 
been imprinted in my brain through pop culture. I can picture it in my head, but I have no memory of seeing the actual cartoon, which I could say is the case with a lot of Tex Avery stuff, because there's almost like interchangeable gags between all yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah, they all blur into each other. But during the 1930s, as, as the decade went on and the Warner unit started to develop its own style, you can start to see Tex Avery coming into his own uh, c- coming into the sensibility uh, that that would come to define him in the 40s in particular for some of his later warner brothers cartoons you see this fourth wall breaking tendency uh, no other warner brothers animator broke the fourth wall with quite the same delight that he did a few examples are there's a cartoon called cinderella meets fella with a character called egghead do you know egghead he was the precursor to elmer yeah Fudd. he basically turned into elmer fudd he had a big nose <laughs> Um, and in that one, it's a Cinderella story where Egghead goes to her house and uh, she's left a note for him that says, oh, I've been waiting for too long. I've gone out to see a Warner Brothers picture. And he starts crying and weeping. He's lost her. But then her silhouette emerges from, you know, the bottom of the screen and says, I'm here. I'm here. I'm right in the fifth row. And then she comes back onto the screen. <laughs> in fact, that silhouette gimmick was a direct inspiration for Mystery Science Theater 3000. We can thank Tex Avery for that. It recurs throughout his Warner Brothers cartoons. Yeah, I was going to say it happens all the time. Like characters standing up and being like, this is boring. Can we move along from this? He's also interested in just like weird things that you could do with the frame. So there's a cartoon called Cross Country Detours from 1940. It's a parody of the travelogue short films that were popular at the time. And there's a moment where the screen goes black and the narrator says, the the next scene uh, features scenes of horror and violence that are too much for for uh, the children in the audience. So we split the screen in two. In the one half, a hideous Komodo dragon. In the other half, a charming recital. And then you see the recital is this like cutesy little like doll-like girl singing, Mary had a little lamb. And on the other side of the screen is this Komodo dragon who's looking over at her. And then, of course, you know, the two halves of the screen merge as the Komodo dragon kills the little girl. Or um, what's buzzin' buzzard, a famous Tex Avery short that involves two buzzards that just want to eat each other. <laughs> it's a pretty horrifying concept, but it starts with an image of like a delicious meal And it ends with the narrator going, and we're going to show you that image again by popular demand of the audience. And you have to remember that this was actually a short that came out in the middle of World War II when rationing was actually a thing. We can thank Tex Avery for giving us Bugs Bunny. Of course, the character of Bugs Bunny would evolve over the years as distinctive artists like Bob Clampett, Chuck Jones, Fritz Freeling would all have their way with him. I would say that Tex Avery's Bugs, like many Tex Avery characters, is kind of a sadistic creature. He doesn't quite have the, uh, of course, you know, this means war sense of honor that the later Bugs would have, where like... No, he he's mean. He's a guy that is always in control, which is something that Tex brought to it. And like all of Tex's characters, especially someone like Screwy Squirrel, they're very antagonistic towards the people that are around him. I mean, Tex... Not only did he give Bugs Bunny, I think, the kind of nucleus of his personality, he also gave him his, what's up, doc? Which was an expression that Tex said that it was just said back home in Texas. That also sounds like an apocryphal story to me. I know that uh, Mel Blanc in his autobiography claimed that he ad-libbed the line, although frankly, I don't believe Mel Blanc. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. sounds full of shit. I think it's one of those success has a, f- a thousand fathers things. And I think, though, that like it's weird to say that some of the 
most important stuff that Tex did came after his Warner Brothers period, after he kind of cemented all of these characters, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Elmer Fudd. And then when he moved over to MGM, he did his stuff that was the most iconic and gets the least watched now. And I think the reason that it's not watched as much is because it doesn't have the same iconic characters. It -hmm. probably also wasn't sold into TV syndication in the way that the Bugs Bunny ones were. Are you trying to tell me that George and Junior, based on everyone's favorite of Mice and Men, are not iconic characters? Yeah, explain to the good people who George and Junior are. Well, they're two bears... And one of them, uh, George, acts like George in Of Mice and Men, a very large man who has mental difficulties. And he sounds like this. And he always talks like this. And he doesn't really know what's going on. And the story goes that, like, when (laughs) Tex Avery figured out that he could use this Mice of Men template in his animated stuff, he was so excited because he suddenly had a dullard character that he could bounce stuff off of. And I mean, this would continue to like appear in even the Warner Brothers stuff. But when you're talking about like the actual animation style and even what kind of feel Avery brings to his cartoons, the word that springs to mind is elasticity. When you think of someone like Chuck Jones, his Bugs Bunny like... It would be rare that his eyes would pop out or like his mouse would drop all the way. That's not really what he did. Well, one of the reasons for that was that by the time Chuck Jones became the elite director at Warner Brothers, short subjects were on their way out theatrically. So you can see a lot of cost-cutting measures in the Chuck Jones cartoons. One of the reasons why, you know, there, there are cartoons like What's Opera Doc that have all these big stylized backgrounds and dr- characters in dramatic poses is they didn't have the money to do such elaborate animation anymore or uh, those other those chuck jones cartoons like duck rabbit duck or rabbit seasoning where it's the rabbit season duck season stuff you'll notice if you watch those cartoons you never see all three characters in the frame together because it would have been expensive to animate all three of them together however in the early 40s when tex avery was at his peak Uh, So, too, were theatrical short subject cartoons. When you watch his MGM cartoons, which, again, I say are the iconic stuff, you can see him just figuring stuff out, figuring angles that he can approach. Essentially the same problem. Even when he was doing the Bugs Bunny ones, they were just variations on a theme. And it's almost because he's been there the longest. His variations are stretching the reality as far as it can go. I think it also has to do with the fact that Tex would be the first one to admit he wasn't a very good draftsman. So his characters didn't have the kind of solid feel that like normal storyboard panels would have. So there was a kind of a looser design to them, which translated to the animation itself. Yeah, and he was often compared to Buster Keaton, not only in his interest in the plastic qualities of the film medium and and in constantly alerting the viewer to the fact that they're watching a film, uh, but also in his interest in having his films be this kind of accumulation of gags and gags within gags and gags within gags within gags. There's a scene in one of the cartoons, I forget which one, but there's a lion who does this uh, very heavy, like, double take, you know, a, a, ve- a very shocked scream. And the double take is funny, but what's also funny is that he lifts the skin of his legs as if they're a dress. And what's funnier than that is underneath, he's wearing undergarments. Like a gag in King Size Canary is that a character, like, reaches back and feels the face of something scary. And instead of turning around, he takes all of the parts, like the teeth, the eyes, the nose, and then he puts them together in front of him to form the scary thing. And then he's frightened. 
Like, that's so funny. The cartoons are also funny because they all have an absurd premise and they follow the premise to the absolute logical conclusion. And I mean, most of the time the cartoons ends with the characters looking into the camera and going, how else did you think it was going to finish? The ending of the cartoon actually um, is one of the core reasons that Tex Avery was fired from Warner Brothers. Have you heard the story? No. That uh, in one of the cartoons, ah, I don't have it in front of me, the characters were supposed to fall three times from a cliff. And uh, the producer said, no, that's too much. You don't need to animate it again. But Tex wanted one of the characters to hold up a sign that says, well, here we go again. And then they go down. And then he got in a fight over that. I'm sure there was other elements around that. And that caused him to be suspended and eventually moving to MGM. A lot of the Tex Avery cartoons were recently released on a Blu-ray from Warner Archive uh, called Tex Avery Screwball Classics Volume 1. I highly recommend that people pick it up. Uh, Gorgeous transfers. It has, as most of the Warner Brothers animation collections do, a disclaimer at the beginning warning people about uh, inside sensitive stereotypes from the past. Uh, These cartoons certainly do. Also, when you watch a lot of these Tex Avery cartoons back to back, you start to see the same visual ideas over and over again. And one thing that he finds funnier than anything else is the idea that uh, there's a woman who's got a veil over her face and she's got this beautiful shapely body and then you pull the veil up and it's like a, oh a hideous face he, he loves that trope. when we talk about tex avery and the kind of style people i think the easiest way to associate it is that who framed roger rabbit is a hundred percent tex avery to the point that a whole section in cartoon world or toontown is ripped off from red hot riding hood oh, you know red hot R- riding hood which is my favorite tex avery cartoon and which is also kind of indefensible in some ways like it's a cartoon that depicts this old woman who's this like insatiable nymphomaniac and it it depicts that as the most awful thing that could ever happen to somebody being pursued by this by this horrible horny old woman oh by the way uh we mentioned that he didn't have as many iconic characters at mgm but how could we forget that he gave the world droopy dog is droopy anyone's favorite character i guess that's kind of his appeal the fact that he's nobody's favorite character the fact that he's just this kind of um uh, abject uh, sourpuss. I think it's because he wasn't in syndication. Like those MGM cartoons did not play. I guess maybe now on like the Cartoon Network at like 1 a.m. in the morning, they probably play. And yet we all know Droopy, don't we? We all, we all absorb him by osmosis. So Tex Avery, uh, you know, he, he was like a rocket and he burnt out. I don't know. I don't know what metaphor I'm looking for. Uh, he was like a shooting star. That's the metaphor I, I'm looking for. And by the end of the 1940s, he felt burnt yeah, out. Yeah, he like took a break for a long time. None of the characters that he created during his MGM t- tenure really took off like the wolf kinda but there was no Bugs Bunny or Porky Pig or even Daffy Duck hit Tex Avery famously hated Screwy Squirrel to the point in the last cartoon that he made Screwy Squirrel dies well there were two cartoon units at MGM one was Tex Avery's and the other was uh, Hanna-Barbera's at which Tom and Jerry were created yeah I mean Tom and Jerry is kind of like the death knell of animated theatrical cartoons because you're chopping away any like imagination until you just have the bare bones of the concept. But Tex Avery's cartoons are so full of visual ideas, so full of energy that by the end of the 1940s, he would say to his friends that, 
I've done it. I've done it every, I've done every possible variation of these gags. I don't find them funny anymore. I need to get away from this. And so he did get away from it. He returned later to television and his later work is, I think, best ignored except for the most serious of Tex Avery scholars. Are you trying to say that we should ignore his ultimate work on Chili Willy the Penguin? Or the Bugs Bunny Kool-Aid commercials he made in the 60s. I gotta say, there's a lot of jokes in those commercials for like a minute long thing. Supposedly, one of the big issues Tex Avery had was he became an ad man. That's where the money was. He designed all of these advertising campaigns. But the uh, clients never wanted any gags in them. So he would always start storyboarding a bunch of gags and they would pair them back until nothing was left. And I think that really kind of sucked the life out of him. He passed away in 1980 and that's like 40 years removed from his peak. And that must have just been like a crushing thing to have to live through those years. Seeing the thing that he pioneered just disappeared and be chopped and kind of made into the monstrosity that Hanna-Barbera would deliver. As we wind down this discussion, I'll tell you that the first time I ever heard of Tex Avery, at least the first time I, I heard the name Tex Avery, was when I was maybe in grade three or four, I rented a video from Blockbuster called Cartoons for Big Kids. <laughs> of course, young Will Sloan would go right for that one. It had a picture on the cover of Red Hot Riding Hood with Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck like leering at her and I thought oh my god what is this is this some kind of like weird off-brand porno thing but no it wasn't it was a documentary hosted by Leonard Malton and the thesis of it was that theatrical cartoons were actually made as much for grown-ups as they were for children and it had a lot in it about Tex Avery and it climaxed with Red Hot Riding Hood and it was Red Hot Riding Hood was kind of mind-blowing to me as a kid that that a car, that a cartoon you know, from the 1930s or 1940s could be that shameful, you know? And I, I think I think Tex Avery today, uh, more than ever, is best appreciated as somebody, as a purveyor of forbidden images and unsavory feelings. Or, you know, just wacky zaniness that's fun to see on screen, eyes popping out of people's skulls. That was the main thing I drew in my notebooks when I was a kid, would be like a character and his eyes popping out of his skull, which is 100% a Tex Avery image. Well, you see, Justin, right here, we have the essential the essential difference between you and me. You feel that Catholic weight of guilt <laughs> seeing these cartoon images playing on screen. I'm just happy when an anvil hits somebody right on the head. Well, on that note, Justin, do we have any letters? <laughs> we do have letters. Uh... You can send letters, as per usual, to the Important Cinema Club podcast at gmail.com. And this letter is from Joe McAlney, and it goes, Hey, Justin and Will. For years now, I've been compiling notes for my first feature-length screenplay, a sort of slapstick paranoid thriller centered on an alcoholic protagonist. While I can draw my own hazy path for inspiration, I also want to look at boozy cinema for ideas. What are your favorite alcoholic films? I'm less interested in movies explicitly about alcoholism than I am in movies that seem to be permeated by a drunken energy, an inebriated spirit. My personal touchstone is Cassavetti's Husbands. Well, as Canadians, we have to say that the ultimate alcoholic movie is Strange Brew. Rest in peace, Max von Sydow. That's right. For people that, I mean, everybody's heard of it. It's your favorite characters from SCTV 
Doug and oh man, I don't even remember the other one's name. They should take away my Canadian citizenship. Uh, that would be Bob and Doug McKenzie, played by Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas. And that is a very boozy movie. You know, when you when you actually watch it, when you actually go back and revisit it, I think it's a movie that's better remembered than seen. I agree. Because when you watch it, there's a lot of downtime in it. <laughs> yeah, there is. Were you an SCTV kid? Like, did that ever get shown in your home? Because my 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 dad never showed me that. I liked SCTV when I would watch it on the Comedy Network. But you know, I had the Bob and Doug McKenzie record album, The Great White North. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad had it. I think as a Canadian male of a certain age, you were legally required to own that album. And I listened to that like endlessly. I loved it. Uh, but in terms of <laughs> uh, boozy, inebriated cinema, I think for me, the obvious go-to example is With Nail and I. Oh, right? that's right. Yeah. Where the whole film is just propelled by the drunkenness of the characters and their comedic despair. Or even to go back to like old Hollywood, which is always drunk, even like a light comedy like The Thin Man is just like uh, the two um, husband and wife slews who are always drunk when they solve these mysteries. Oh, and hey, who could forget Drunken Master 1 and 2? The movies that taught <laughs> of course. us. The movies that taught us that the key to mastering the the, the martial arts is uh, what is it that he has in the second one? Paint thinner. That's right. But it also leads to very un-PC depictions <laughs> of mental disabilities. So again, if you want to send us letters, it's important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. And what are we doing on our Patreon this week, Will? We looked at a childhood favorite of many people, a movie that scarred a lot of children, a movie that Justin saw a lot when he was a boy, and that I only saw for the first time today. It's a movie called The Peanut Butter Solution. So this is the film, for people who are not aware of it, about a... It's a real simple story. A young boy uh, sees a ghost, loses all his hair. Those ghosts tell him how to grow the hair back. Goes out of control. And then crazy stuff, including uh, child enslavement in a factory, happen. It's a film that has recently been released by Severin, the cult Blu-ray company. (laughs) And we talk about it on our Patreon, which you can listen to for $5 a month at patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. And best of all, it's a Canadian film. That's right. And is there any better time to become a Patreon subscriber than now when the world is collapsing upon itself and you just want to hear the voice of a friend, a.k.a. me and Will Slow? That's right, because if you don't have any friends now, you're definitely not going to make them in the next four or five weeks. So pretend that we're your friends. That's right. And become a Patreon subscriber. Yeah, friendship for only $5 a month? It's a bargain. And hey, you could you could talk back at the podcast when you're listening to it. <laughs> Pretend you're the third That's guy right. in the room. We want you to be the next ho- co-host of the Important Cinema Club. So next week, Will, feels like we've been going a little bit in the weeds with these kind of obscure filmmakers like Tex Avery. So it's time to get those clicks. What are we doing? Yes, we're doing a subject that is guaranteed a minimum of uh, 5 million retweets from... <laughs> 5 million? From 5 million... Uh, either fan or bot accounts that specialize in retweeting this sort of thing. I'll take it. We are talking about Mr. Robert Pattinson. Wait, the guy who does the Twilight movies? 
That's right, the sparkly vampire himself. Uh, actually, we're not doing this subject just for cravenly opportunistic reasons. We're doing it because Robert Pattinson has a peculiar uh, and interesting career. Somebody who has cashed the chips that he gained from being part of a juggernaut franchise to make movies with directors ranging from Claire Denis to Werner Herzog to the Safdie brothers to, God, you name it, manifold auteurs. And so I think we're going to watch Twilight, definitely. Have you ever seen it? I've seen one of them. I think I saw the third or fourth one. (laughs) Ah, you were lost in the story then, Will. Yeah, I I actually followed it very easily. (laughs) (laughs) You can start at the beginning. I have them all on DVD, untouched. I believe, hidden behind a secret panel. <laughs> and I've never watched them. I suggest that we watch Cosmopolis, his uh, f- okay. his first David Cronenberg movie, because I feel like my memory of it is his performance in that one is very similar to his performance in the Twilight movies. And then maybe give Good Times a spin. I haven't seen it since I saw it in theaters. Yeah, I'd love to watch that. And of course, you know, this also doubles on not just the Twilight fans, we want those bat heads to retweet this as well because Robert Pattinson's going to be Batman soon. Excited to dive in. Okay, so until next week, my name is Justin Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Well, I wish I could just go to a theater and watch something like The Invisible Man or The Hunt or Trolls World Tour, but they're all closed. Oh, wait, no, my monkey's paw hand is, the finger is closing. And what, what's this? The studios are putting all of those movies and Vin Diesel's Bloodshot online weeks after it came out? Wow. Bloodshot got like five days in theaters. <laughs> Not even. It got like two days in the theaters and then they basically shut the doors. I mean, famously, famously, I say, I'm uh, probably the most notable kind of lack of box office success was Pixar's Onward, which came out right as this whole pandemic thing was starting and made the least money of any Pixar film ever to appear in theaters. The theaters are closed and all of the big releases right now have either been delayed or are going straight to streaming. And uh, I think a lot of people are looking at this and saying, well, is this is this some sort of tectonic shift? Is this going to be the moment that finally kills movie theaters once and for all? Are we going to come back from this? Justin, are, you're, you're the Criswell of this podcast. Can you predict the future? Yes. And my prediction is, no, it's not going to kill the theatrical experience because there was way too much money in getting people to come out to the theater and buy an overpriced ticket, which the studio gets like 85% of (laughs) and putting into their pockets with new stuff like IMAX or 3D so they can fill those pockets. And, you know, studios, it's all about the, you know, perception of this was a hit. This had a big giant weekend and those online numbers are not going to give it to well them. also streaming has not fully filled the void that home video did before it collapsed it used to be that movies could actually make back could recoup a lot of what they lost in theaters from dvd and blu-ray sales but now that's totally collapsed and it seems that just as many people would pirate something like the invisible man than would pay 19.99 to stream it that's how much it's going for the problem with streaming is again the price that i think people balk at and it's also the issue that if it goes directly to something like Netflix or Disney Plus, there is no like monetary value it can make back to pay its budget. 
we've talked about this before. Netflix is running billion dollars in the red. So is Disney Plus. It's for years they said they're going to run in the red. These are not profitable enterprises, but they're easy ways to advertise things. And also, you know, Netflix, its model is we're going to become so big and so well known that we can't fail. That's their whole idea going forward from now on. Eventually, we've said this a dozen times, it's going to collapse. It just can't sustain itself. It's like Blockbuster. It killed all those mom and pop shops. And then eventually it got so big that it just couldn't sustain itself anymore. Well, I'm glad we got the Irishman out of it before everything <laughs> everything went to hell. Wait, were there any movies that you were excited about that were coming out soon? I know that you had Black Widow circled on your calendar. Oh, well, you know, speaking of boozy, alcoholic movies, I was probably going to try to find time to go see uh, Ben Affleck drinking in the shower in the way back. Good luck. It's coming out, I think, this week out on online. Yeah, it won't be the same. You know, it would be great to have a nice communal experience. Me and all the other Affleck heads, you know, just just crying together. It would be like a support circle, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you and your irony bros sitting on a Tuesday. That's right. The cheap day watching the movie. Exactly, yes. I mean, I was very saddened when they pushed back Fast and the Furious a whole year. That's like a dagger through my heart. I was sad that the James Bond movie was delayed to November. I mean, we have... I don't care. Yeah, you don't care about James. You know, I don't even care about James Bond, but it's also like, yeah, if one of those is coming out, you know, I've been going to see them for so long. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go see... I'll see some, you know, stunts and gadgets and stuff. I We have so little to look forward to now. Did you hear that they said it's the longest James Bond movie ever? Ugh, that's not, Some of those movies are pretty long. Like, it's supposed to be around two hours and 50 minutes. Oof. <laughs> that is insanity for James Bond. Actually, they should put that straight to streaming so that, you know, I could watch it while doing something else. <laughs> Actually, maybe this is the future. Yeah, that, you know, people folding their their laundry while watching a movie, to which I have to say, how much laundry do you people have? You seem to be always folding laundry watching movies. <laughs>